0: This is the Future of Work Limited Series Podcast, brought to you by Andrew R. Timming, Professor of Human Resource Management at RMIT University. This podcast series brings together world-leading experts and thinkers to discuss employment trends and the future of the labor market. You can follow me on Twitter at TimmingLab, that's T-I-M-M-I-N-G-L-A-B. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural podcast uh, as part of the Future of Work series that I'm running. I'm Professor Andrew Timming, And today I'm sitting down with Andrew Merritt. Uh, Allow me please, Andrew, to introduce you if that's all right. Uh, Andrew Merritt is the founder of Organization View, one of Europe's oldest people analytics practices. Before launching Organization View, he spent 10 years running global HR projects in the areas of employee experience, employee branding and recruitment marketing. Since 2015, Organization View has specialized in using machine learning to understand employee text and using this in combination with other data sources to make better workforce decisions. Clients include major global corporations and technology firms. In addition to his client work, Andrew teaches people analytics on a leading Swiss HRM master's course and publishes the weekly newsletter, Empirical HR. You can visit his website at www.organizationview.com. Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, I'm really pleased that you're
0: here, and I'm looking forward to uh, a discussion in terms of how um, machine learning can add value to um, HR decision-making. And I guess maybe the first question uh, I would want to pose to you um, is how did you learn about machine learning? And specifically, how did you envision that this would be an important skill to have in relation to HR?
1: I think that's a good question. So my background was um, numerical. I My university degree was was economics, but heavily based on econometrics. So, and right back from Probably the late 70s, I had been very computer focused. I came from a computing family. We had a, a homemade computer, which my father built out of a kit. And I think uh, probably in, in the late 70s, I would learned to, to program basic and things. So um, using computing power to do uh, analysis sort of felt natural to me. The first time I used machine learning in, in an HR context was back in 2003, Um, I was working for a large bank um, in the UK and we were trying to do a project around the employee benefits um, and really trying to understand what what benefits that um, employees were looking for. We decided one of the ways to do that was to work in partnership with our colleagues in um, marketing and the marketing sciences group were using um, early machine learning and, and um, helped us with using, using the, effectively the HR data but in using those, those marketing frameworks. Um, and that, were, that to me provided a really interesting way of using data to solve a problem which probably wasn't been used by, by data in the past. Um, It was able to spot, uh, we were able to spot patterns across a very large set of data um, in a way that, you know, it was probably most of an exploratory way. So using machine learning to identify patterns that we could use as sort of an exploratory data analysis. Um, And and from that point, I was... um, I was hooked into the the process of it. Obviously, machine learning eighteen years ago is is nowhere near as powerful as it is today, and computing is nowhere near as powerful as it is today. Um, but you know even the simple sort of approaches, I suspect we were looking at things such as um, decision early decision trees um, back then, um, were still able to give us a fresh perspective on on the data. Um, and for me, as somebody with a, a sort of a computing type mindset, it, it 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 just appeals. I think is probably the best way of doing it. Um, it's certainly not the right right approach for every solution, um, and and but it it gives the analyst an extra string in their bow, and and that that helps.
0: Yeah. You mentioned you studied econometrics, and I think maybe just for the benefit of our listeners. Do you think you could define machine learning and how it differs from other forms of um, for example correlational analysis?
1: yeah sure so machine learning is is um, I think it's probably best if you com- com- um, compare it with the sort of traditional statistics that um, that we were using you know back in the back in the early 90s in in econometrics which were um typically um based on a set of assumptions on what a you know what the probability curve looks like and 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 what what model should be and therefore running um running a set of analysis. I I believe that many of the ways that we did statistics in the 20th century um, were based on the assumption that computing and data was was both expensive. And certainly I can remember times back in university where where that was the case. I remember trying to do an analysis on stock market prices and having to look at um, images of of stock price publications on a daily basis and typing them in one by one for a year where where now you just get a data set which would probably be on a minute by minute basis. So a lot of the statistics we were probably using back in the 20th century were um, very smart, neat shortcuts for for a world where data was expensive and computing was expensive. Um, As we started getting into the late um, 1990s and certainly at the turn, turn of the, the millennium, um, I, I think we, we started getting into a world where the data become becomes a lot more available and where computing becomes a lot more available. And a lot of the techniques in machine learning are Fundamentally, not very sophisticated. Um, they often rely on brute force and thousands and thousands of calculations, often of a, of a quite simple nature. Um, and you know, we've traded in this, this smart, elegant um, type of statistics, which relied on a lot of assumptions, which may or may not be true, um, for something which just uses computing power and brute force to to identify patterns. Um, That's not to say it's without um, uh, statistic. A lot of the underlying algorithms are relatively basic statistics in many cases. Um, But but the difference between now and 20 years ago is is this difference in computing power and just being able to throw a lot of compute at a problem. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think maybe um, one of the the key points to make in terms of contrasting uh, machine learning with um, sort of, as you say, standard econometrics or regression-based modeling is that one could argue that regression-based modeling is better at explaining how certain factors relate to an outcome, um, but probably not as good at predicting that outcome, whereas machine learning is actually very, very good at predicting a particular outcome, um, but not so good at explaining how it arrived at that particular um, result. So I wonder if you could say something to address the criticism that people have in relation to machine learning, that it's a bit like a black box. It it gets you the outcome, but it doesn't provide you with sufficient insight into how you arrived at that outcome. I
1: think that there's a mixed part of that. I think there's certainly some of that is true, but also if you look at Um, we still use decision trees an awful lot um, when we're doing analysis because they're very good at explaining um, what is going on. Um, They're certainly looking at it from a sort of a more non-linear process than regressing. Um, And you can go into what are often called black box models um, and they are often more powerful um, than, than you know simpler methods like decision decision trees, um, but in an HR context, often the ability to understand the model is at least as beneficial as as getting the right prediction. So. Um, for me, in a in an HR context, most of the action that you want to take and what most of the decisions you want to take, if you want to change something, um, which is for me the, the reason we we do this, um, are often policy decisions. And for policy decisions, you need to understand um, why something's happening or understanding that I'm not suggesting it's it's causal. That's a That's probably a conversation for a much longer podcast um, on on whether this is actually causal or not. But but understanding what's going on is is vitally important. And for most of the work we do outside some of the text, I would be comfortable trading off a few percentage on predictive quality for um, the clarity of how it's predicting that thing. And especially as we move towards... Um, ethics and use and the sort of ethics of using data. I think it's vitally important we understand how um, decisions are being made by these al- algorithms, and and therefore, in many instances, the the HR analyst doesn't need to understand how to, you know, to use a great deep learning algorithm. Partly they won't have enough data I suspect to use it successfully, but partly also um, for me, the trade-off is, is better having something simpler that you can explain to an executive than to have something that's more, um, that's potentially more accurate, but it's a black box.
0: Mm. Can you walk me through how you do this kind of work? What kind of software do you use? Uh, what kind of data do you use? And and what kind of outcomes do you typically predict in the work that you do?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um from the from the start when i founded organization Beatview back in 2009 um we focused on a, a software called R, which is a statistical programming language um back in 2009 it was seen as a bit of an oddball choice i think it was being used a lot more in academia but um given its open source there was a um there was a reluctance to use it I suspect a lot of large firms like the instance we I did back in 2003 we're using um, SAS or, or one of those type of traditional enterprise statistical um, programming tools um, ours been ex- you know the, the growth of R over the last 10 15 years has has been enormous and um the ability to use the models in it has become in some ways easier and easier and easier. And um, uh, analysts no longer need to understand necessarily the, the, um, the, the algorithms and details to be able to apply them. They, you know, it's, a, it's a simple case of often using um, terminology very simple, similar to using a regression model. You know, I want to predict this variable and here the the features that I'm going to be using um, as as a regression in, in there. So it's become become a lot easier. Also, what we've seen over the last ten years is an explosion in the number of relatively simple um, guides to how to produce to to build a model in in these type of software, um, and you can effectively get code often very nicely explained code so you can understand how to apply something within an HR context from in terms of the data that's being used I think the the data that most organizations use first is the things coming out of HR databases so you know if I think back at the early attempts for many firms use it doing people analytics so it would be Probably five years ago, we were doing a lot of work with clients who wanted to do pilots and they wanted to do things such as predicting attrition or predicting the cost of attrition. And, and we were using data from HR data sets um, on both who the employees were, but also their actions, you know, had they recently changed jobs, had they recently had a pay rise, that type of type of information. But it was almost always coming at, at that time from HR data sets. Um, Over time, the data sets are broadened and and these days it would be very common to use um, data coming out of business systems, which often have um, the ability to link into the individual who's performing the the task um, or, as we like to do, um, using text as well and and, um, feedback as well and bringing those into models um we think the text is important to be able to try to help answer the question why somebody's doing something and and as i said i I think you need to understand the why to be able to take effective decisions
0: Mm. i think it's great that you that you raise the issue of textual analysis because when most people think of machine learning they think of exclusively numbers um, but there are various um methods in the context of machine learning, like natural language processing, for example, or uh, topical analysis uh, that can be used to identify uh, patterns within words. Could you explain just like a practical example of how you would use textual data to extract insight for a client?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, we've done quite a lot of work this year on diversity. And um, because of, I think, because a a lot of firms have been impacted by the the whole Black Lives Matter um, instance, and they were much more keenly aware of of needing to understand employee views on on diversity. So um, we were often getting this data, going back and looking at data over a period of time. Um, One of the changes we've seen over the last three or four years is that many firms have moved away from an annual, engagement survey and are now taking it twice a year, quarterly or even monthly, um, and therefore we have a lot more data to look at. Um, most of those surveys have always had an open text question. Um, the majority of time it's something as simple as um, what's great about working here or, or what could we do about uh, um, working here and if we're looking at those type of questions, we have an internal model which which has identified around 125 different topics that people talk about there, which um, obviously is, is is more topics than you'd even expect in a in a very long traditional survey, and some of them will be diversity related to topics. So um, we we're able to to use that data and understand. And identify who's relating to topics that have um, a, a, di- a diversity um, content within that topic. And then using the, the time, uh, um, using, using the data in a longitudinal manner. So um, looking at how people who have talked about diversity topics. Change their behaviour in the future. We can then start relate. We can start identifying um, what are the topics and what are the issues that are most likely to relate to future outcomes, inc- including leaving. And um, so, what we found is that often more engaged people will talk about diversity topics as an underlying theme. Um, it, it it's an for many, most people it's an annoyance it um, but it it doesn't seem to cause action the the time it does cause action is when it starts being related to events such as performance management such as pay increases such as selection for jobs um, internally and then we've identified that the people who um, who mention those Two things in combination in this open text are some somewhere in the region of six hundred percent more likely to leave in the following year than than people who don't mention it. So, um, using that sort of data actually is really useful to to give a better perspective to senior executives of just how it's causing pain. Um, it often we when we do doing the analysis and the, we're cutting the data, we do see that diverse you know employees have a an interest in diversity um either as a as a view on fairness within their organization or because they feel that you know it's it's an inconvenience or there's no role models um in senior executives and things like that but but being able to state to executives when you know when it actually starts impacting them and their careers then there's this thing that's going to cost you a lot of money that, that's an outcome. is it, really powerful at providing more nuanced understanding and ultimately driving action.
0: Mm. It's interesting to see how you're using machine learning to tackle diversity issues because of course uh, one of the big critiques of machine learning um, especially in the last couple of years has been uh, the fact that it doesn't do oftentimes uh, a very good job in generating outcomes that are sensitive to diversity. So you probably heard Mm -hmm. about the debacle in Google where they were using predictive analytics to uh, effectively decide who they should hire, who they should promote. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out that their models were quite severely biased against female job applicants and and female employees. Um, But there's nothing intrinsically wrong about machine learning. That would you think that that's a fair in in the sense that it's not necessarily biased in that way, it can be used for good as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've um, this week in the newsletter, I had an interesting paper which um, a bunch of computer scientists and economists decided to to run an experiment, um, and and obviously, as as somebody with a statistical background, you know we love experiments because they're the way of, of identifying many instances, course. Um, and they explored both the the backgrounds of the machine learner and and their biases, and also the data. And it was it was quite clear that it was generally the data that the, the, the data that the models were being trained on, which was resulting in the in the undesirable outcomes. Um, if, you've, if you're training a computer to learn from an organization which has a bias of some form, it's highly likely that that model will um, at, at best replicate that bias and at worst amplify it. And um, But I think there are some things that an analyst should be doing um, in terms of checking Checking the, that data, you know, auditing their algorithms. I think this is uh, um, this is an area where we'll see a lot of improvements over the next few years. Um, most of the big firms like Google and Amazon have already got um, free toolkits to use on your algorithms to help I- help identify issues of bias. Um, they're not as frequently used, especially in HR, as I'd like them to be used um but i think we start we'll start to see the sort of ethical audits of of machine learning appear a lot more in both hr cases and um, other instances and i suspect the only real way of doing that that auditing is having an independent auditor um doing that doing that type of work um but i don't think it's anything that's specific about machine learning i think it's if you you know if you teach teach any algorithm, whether it's a regression or or, or even you know some of the more modern ones um, it will pick up patterns in that in that data and it will start to replicate it We know in regression analysis you put a few you have a small data set and a few outliers in there and suddenly the outliers might influence the model considerably and it's the same in in machine learning
0: mm-hmm. yeah no I agree with you I agree. Um, what would you say to the critics of machine learning who argue that this is just a, a gimmick or a passing fad um, how do we know that this method is here to stay
1: um, I think we see, I, I think in many instances when it's been applied correctly we're seeing strong business benefits out of it and um you know arguably as an economist i would think that uh you know it becomes rational to do something that, that is producing um business benefits obviously there's a lot of instances at the moment where it's not being applied um correctly a lot of that is actually it's not being used to answer the correct questions so the example i always used to Used to like giving was on those times when we were doing the, um, the attrition modeling. A client would say to me, We want to reduce attrition in, the, in this firm, and um, we want to use a bunch of methods to do so, including machine learning. And I would explain that it's probably not the a- absolute amount of attrition that you want to reduce, um, but the cost of attrition. And being able to reframe the question in that manner um was was important to be able to show the longevity and the value of the of, of doing the analysis. Um, I joked once to a very, very senior HR director that if you wanted to um reduce attrition, you know, to do the optimal thing to reduce attrition in his firm, he'd be a lot better at, he should be a lot better at keeping poor performers because they were the ones who left the most. Um, <laughs> and obviously that was, that was, that was incredible. But, but framing the right question is, in any analysis, whether it's machine learning or regression, or, or even a qualitative study, you know, you need to ask the right question. And, and still we see too many people who, who don't. Um, so I think I, I, I think it will be continue to be used. I think the availability of data makes it much more likely that it's it, the barriers to doing it are, are lower than they were in the past. Um, but I don't think it takes away um, human decision making. I don't believe. I, I think it really just contributes an extra voice and should be used as. A, uh, as a, a check on whether somebody's assumptions are correct, but uh, I'm not one of these analysts who thinks that gut decisions are necessarily bad. I, you know, I, I I take the view that the reason we have gut decisions is is because we have experience of something and we framed it in a way, and uh, and either our framing's wrong or uh, or or it's, in many instances correct. Um, and we and humans are an awful lot better at, at, at identifying things with very small data you know, instances than than any form of statistical technique is. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think you make really an excellent point um, just to kind of wrap things up here that um, machine learning is really only as good as the modeler. Um, and mm. yeah, if, if you don't know what you're doing or you're not uh, using the methods appropriately, um, it's like with any other statistical technique, garbage in, garbage out. Um, but if it's used um, properly, um, I don't know if you would agree with me but I think that it it can ab- it can absolutely revolutionize uh, decision making and I think maybe a good example of that would be in relation to um, equities trading uh, today mm-hmm. so you know that you used to have you know people like Warren Buffett who who could invest based on fundamentals and you know do their research and figure out fundamentally which which um, you know stock prices are undervalued and when to buy um, but I think these days, um, if you look at um, investment decision-making, uh, the lion's share of it, at least at the, at the top level, is driven by um, machine learning, by these, these sort of advanced algorithms. And it's virtually impossible for an individual investor to be able to compete with that computing power. Uh, because although we have better insights um, than you know, machine, machines can ever have, um, at the same time, they can process data at a rate well beyond what we can do. It's like a calculator, you know, can do mathematics much more quickly than we can do. So I guess maybe the way I'm heading with this question is, do you have any concerns about the sort of inequalities in relation to accessing machine learning in the sense that it's a privileged few uh, who are able to to employ these methods and and generate the benefits. Um, And do you see any way of widening access so that more and more people can be aware of, you know, what machine learning can do, how it can benefit them, how it can benefit their organizations and how they can actually carry out the analyses?
1: Yeah, you're making a really, really good point. And, and it will be a point that, you know, I, as I come into to running my training course next week, I have to think about, if I'm a large multinational organization, the sort that are our, our clients with maybe 50,000 or above employees around the world, they ha- and, and quite advanced computing systems because they need those advanced systems, to be able to efficiently manage such large populations, and and arguably they've got the money to invest in in those large systems, they can do an awful lot more than a smaller organisation can. Um, the when I'm teaching analytics, the challenge I always have is, you know, I'm getting somebody in an organisation with a few hundred huge staff. You know, it's maybe an HR team of one or two. They they probably don't have the skills to do it, but they certainly don't have the data size to do it either they they you know there's only so much that they can do with um with 300 answers if you're looking at attrition yeah. modeling they may only have lost 10 people in the last year so you know trying to find a statistical you know reason for that is is almost impossible um, i think there's i think some of the hr technology tools are bringing um some form of leveling into into here where they can look at a thousand organizations with 300 people and then start sorting patterns out Um, but you know we always get better results when we're organization specific and often when we're country specific we're building country specific models if i'm working on a nutrition model i'll almost always do it even for one firm on on a country by country basis because assumptions change the way that people look at work changes the local the local external recruitment market changes all those type of things um so it's i think it it does amplify the as you say the inequality between large organizations and 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 smaller organizations and and um i think this is not just in an hr concept I, I i suspect it's going to be more difficult for small organizations to compete with very large organizations on a whole range of different data driven um instances um, you know I, my um, my wife here runs a um, a bookshop which is doing very well but you know the data she has on on a book selling is vastly different than Amazon has on right. selling a book. Um, and, uh, you know, for them, if they sell one or two of a particular book a month, then you can't extrapolate that and say, okay, you sold two last month and therefore it's going to be a big seller next month. It's, you know, it could just be that, it's one person with a couple of people within it with the same interest who just happened to be in the shop at this sort of time so yes I think that there is inequalities here and I think it's probably organization sides as much as anything that's that's the problem
0: you've been listening to Andrew Merritt from Organization View talking about machine learning and its implications for human resource management decision making Uh, Andrew, I want to thank you very much for the time that you've given today and for the insight that you've shared.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Have a wonderful day. Uh, I understand you're in Zurich. It'd be hard to not have a wonderful day in a place like Zurich, and um, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you very much. This is Professor Andrew R. Timming signing out.